Hello, gang. Now, the title here, would you dare have this on Radio National, ABC Tele? The magic of mushrooms, a mycelial path to saving the planet. Is this going to be more agitprop? Are these all Marxist-Leninist revolutionaries? <laughs> you know, they look innocent enough. I'm Robin Williams. I'm the president of the Ita Buttrose fan club. <laughs> Why are you clapping? <laughs> really? I do things on the radio and television now and then, and uh, have done since 1972 during which time there has been a general appearance of fungi and other things, but not enough. I'm reminded of this when seeing, not on the ABC, but elsewhere, a film called The Kingdom, which is about fungi. Anyone seen it? Not one person that I get. One, 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 over the, one, fantastic. Isn't it brilliant? Yes, she said, yes. It is really extraordinary. It's one of those things that we ought to do more of instead of all this about you know, your weight and your bum and your cooking and stuff. Because the kingdom, the whole kingdom of these other creatures, like the kingdom of the animals and the kingdom of the plants, is so vitally important. I was talking to Brian, the woodman on my right, <laughs> about an extract from the film which said, amongst other things, that none of you would be here if it weren't for fungi. Because the infection you'd get, because they were here first, and they're so ubiquitous, they're extraordinary, that they would have been taking over your primitive body if it weren't for one important thing, according to this superb film. You have a raised temperature. And because you're warm-blooded, these creatures do not infest you. Unless you haven't washed for a week, of course. <laughs> but this is highly significant. And I find it really extraordinary that so little is known about mycelia and the other fungi living underground. They're gigantic. Now, Brian, this is a leading question. <laughs> to which the answer is yes. Do you think we've underestimated the importance of this kingdom? Yes. <laughs> Go on. Very much so. So my name's Brian Pickles, and I'm a lecturer in ecology at the University of Reading in the UK. And as the first guest to talk, I'm going to use the privilege of saying that I'm a fun guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right, got my pun in there. Um, I mostly work on uh, trees and their special relationship with fungi that link them all up below ground. Um, and yeah, that's, I, I think they're incredible. They do all sorts of things. That's Alison, introduce yourself similarly and tell me, as an ancillary, how many mycologists there might be in the country. Well, does anybody know? That's way too many. There's actually one full-time mycologist looking at the ecology of fungi. So I've got some medical mycologists, agriculture mycologists, but as compared to all those zoologists and bot botanists, we need a few more mycologists out there. My name's Alison Puglio. I'm uh, on a mission to fungally infect you all by the end of today. <laughs> or perhaps fungally infect your consciousness to try and get fungi into our concepts of what biodiversity is, of what nature is, and how fungi actually underpin the architecture of our soils and draw all the trees and fungi and other plants, and indeed us together. And Gavin, I heard you on the radio with Brian yesterday. Uh, I think it was uh, with Jonathan Green, was it not? Um, talking about all sorts of amazing things, how you can use them. Where do you come from? Certainly. So uh, my organization, Ecovative Design, is based in upstate New York. And a little over a decade ago, we began growing alternatives for the conventional plastics that are used in protective packaging and building construction using mycelium, the vegetative or root-like structure of mushrooms so that these materials are compatible with our planet at the end of their useful life. Fantastic. <laughs> On a scale you just won't believe. Now, Mike, 
yeah. how you connected to Gavin and his work. Okay, uh, I'm Mike Hornblow. I'm an interdisciplinary artist and uh, lecturer at the University of Tasmania um, in the, the School of um, Architecture and Design. And we were very lucky to have Gavin come over um, last week. We did a, a talk as part of our design forum series in Launceston, and then we went down and uh, gave a talk at uh, Mona in Hobart. So, um, yeah, we've been working on a, a biofabrication theme for the last uh, year and a half, where we're working with various biomaterials, kelp, um, SCOBY, uh, and now mycelium, to see how it can be scaled up to an architectural um, application. By the way, Mike, have you seen Tim Flannery's book about kelp, which he launched, helped launch at this no. conference last year? No, I haven't, no. Well, obviously they uh, grow on a gigantic scale in, yeah. the, in the sea, in the oceans, especially if it's not too hot. <laughs> But, uh, you know, mm. vast supply if you look after them. Indeed, yes. Especially around Tasmania. Yes. Okay, now, Brian, something at this end, and we'll get out of order in a minute, but um, something you hinted at yesterday, the Wood Wide Web. What is it? Okay, so who in the audience has been thinking about fungi today? <laughs> God, Excellent. you fib, don't you? Excellent. <laughs> And uh, who understands what mycelium are? Yeah, okay. So did you all Fewer. know that you are currently on top of a whole schwack of mycelium <laughs> attached to the roots of those grasses, the roots of the trees that are extending out underneath us all, uh, and those roots are all connected up to fungi. Uh, and the fungi are interacting with the plants, they're interacting with the soil, uh, and they form the foundation of this incredible symbiosis uh, which has been going on ever since plants came onto land, as far as we can tell, so hundreds of millions of years. And in fact, before the plants came onto land and started dominating things, uh, we think fungi were actually there and, and beat them to it. And is this in all trees everywhere? Um, Trees are all forming interactions with different types of fungi. Uh, there are different types of mycorrhizas, uh, but trees are all forming these intimate associations uh, in their roots uh, with fungi in the soil. So because it's all happening in the soil under our feet, we very rarely think about it. But remember, uh, after you've left here today, as you're walking around in this park, under your feet, uh, it's not just soil, it's biology. Brian, would you like to yes. take my tree root? Yes, I would. If you imagine this plastic pipe, you talk about these relationships, these mycorrhizal relationships, if you imagine this plastic pipe is a tree root or a rootlet, a tiny root under the soil, they're not actually particularly good at getting water, getting nutrients, unless they've got their fungal partner. Now, I've borrowed these from my elderly neighbour and I have to give them back. This is the fungal mycelium that Brian talked about. It actually Here's forms a sheath. So Brian's the tree, this is the root under the soil. Guys, can you hang on to the fungal mycelium? And Alison is showing might need a her tights. Well. Don't leave Robin out. Hundreds and of tights. In fact, could you hang on to that one for me? That's great. I'm just explaining for the radio audience exactly what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> right across the stage, as far as you can see, everything being connected. So imagine this tree now that was trying to get water, trying to get nutrients. It actually wasn't particularly effective until it had its fungal partner that can allow it to access perhaps up to a thousand times more soil, increasing the surface area, solubilising or making absorbable nutrients and all kinds of compounds that the tree needs. And when we do things like compact the soil or drown it or poison it, we lose this fungal partner, we break up the symbiosis and the relationship. And not only does this tree have one fungus or multiple fungi, but this tree can give that tree right over there a bit of carbon or transport other things to other trees. And in return, the tree gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So it's a perfect marriage of symbiosis. Thank you, fungal mycelium holders. Thank you. As you could see, the scale of that was really astounding. <laughs> now, Gavin, also on the table, you have a couple of artefacts to wave for us. Yes. One looks like a brick, 
and the other's just like a piece of polystyrene. What are it? <laughs> yeah, certainly. So what we grow at Ecovative is mycelium-based materials. So as humans, we've been able to exploit other types of biology for our materials needs, be it plants that we've used for building construction materials or the fiber in our clothing, or animals for food and things of like that of nature. But until only a couple of decades ago, fungal mycelium has really been an untapped resource for our material needs. And what's really unique about mycelium is that they're nature's recyclers. They're able to take the leaf litter and coarse woody debris that's produced annually and convert it into the mushroom you may see growing along the side of a tree or along the forest floor. But underneath that is this vast network of mycelium. And if you take a look at the material properties, it has a lot of the same characteristics from densities and mechanical perspectives as conventional plastics. But of course, being entirely bio-based, they can passively return to the earth in just 45 days when they're placed in plant-based compost pile. You could replace the world's plastic, could you? That's what we're working to do, but it's a very regional model. So, so, today we have partnerships in Europe as well as in Israel, and of course we're growing products in, in North America as well. But what's important about this concept is that you have to take advantage of local resources. So all of the materials that we use in our production come from within about 100 kilometers of our manufacturing locations. And part of the reason why I'm here and working with Mike is to start fostering the mycelium materials community here in, Europe, in, uh, in Australia, taking advantage of the resources and the fungal species that are native to this region. Any waste organic stuff, you can put the mycelia there and they grow. Very much so. So fungi have this great enzymatic toolkit, basically what breaks down all these different biological materials. So they can break down everything from wood to even the chitin found in lobster and crab shells to even plastics. So their degradation characteristics and what they can actually break down and utilize is tremendous in, in mass. On what scale could this manufacturing enterprise be? So today we always focus on a regional paradigm and we grow about a thousand tons of mycelium materials annually just in our New York location. And then that's extended internationally uh, through our partnerships. Well, you know, throughout the, well, the world, but Australia certainly and South Australia, there are various Communities such as Lee Creek, which uh, the famous Jane Lomax Smith, who's also at this conference, who used to be Lord Mayor of Adelaide, is trying to save as a community. Is it the kind of industry that could be taken to a place like that, which is, you know, dead, dying? Oh, oh, very much so. There's a, a tremendous opportunity to tap into local municipalities and the resources that are available there, particularly within a mining community. Old mines have been uh, great cultivation locations for mushrooms because they tend to stay cool and keep the right climate conditions without any active use of energy. So that's it's certainly uh, yeah. applicable to those. And you can communities. even make bricks out of it because that's a brick-shaped object you've got in front of you there. Yeah. And it repairs itself, I hear. So these materials, first and foremost, are dead. So these are not going to grow again. But if you were to have a bioactive piece of material, as long as it's not a different species, if you take two of the like strain and put them together, they'll actually grow and fuse together over the course of just 24 to 48 hours. And that bond strength that's achieved is comparable to that of the composite itself. So rather than using mortar to grow your house together, you can just use the native culture. And Mike, how are you helping in this scheme? Well, yeah, I think what's really interesting, um, you know, we've been looking at mycotexture, which is the meeting of mycelium and architecture. And I think what's really interesting when it, when it comes to particularly a biobrick is um, there's, a, there's a, a whole range of performance capacities for the way that it um, is acoustic, the way it's uh, fire retardant, it's uh, mycelium is naturally Homo uh, um, not homophobic. <laughs> Hydrophobic. <laughs> That's the perfect quote, isn't it? Um, actually, I think it's probably the opposite. It's probably totally queer, I would say. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so it's very, it's very performative, but then at the same time, um, it's, it's aesthetically very performative. So you have these fantastic um, experiments that people done around the world, various, various precedents, um, festival pavilions, um, very, various experiments where, because it's very strong, but it's also very, very lightweight. And so you'll have interactive um, mobile installations where the audience can actually move it. 
Um, also, when the, um, the biobrick reaches its full colonisation, depending on the particular conditions and the particular um, substrate and species of um, mycelium, it will then flower. And so you get these amazing, amazing mushroom flowers coming out. So some artists and designers have actually incorporated those two things. Um, one example um, is uh, Philip Ross from Microworks, um, the, um, his Microtexture Alpha, which was a tea house. So he's got a tea house about two and a half metres high. It's basically a self-supporting arch, bristling with mushrooms. And then he can take one of those and soak it in water and then offer tea to his audience. So, you know, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a fun material as well as a, um, as well as a functional one. And if you remember that the fungi are involved in things like the wine industry, the beer industry, Alison, why on earth only one mycologist? Apart from the minute, it'd just be on belief. I think fungi just haven't been part of our consciousness in Australia, as perhaps we're seeing in the States or Europe or elsewhere. I mean, we talk about flora and fauna. Where's the third F? Where's the fungi? And I think it's amazing this work that you guys are doing, but I think first, all science, all scientific research is also driven by public interest and impetus. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is get fungi into our consciousness and awareness and actually have fungi included in and our concepts of biodiversity, get fungus species listed on our red lists or red list equivalents. And I think then government departments, the general public, all sorts of people will recognise we actually need mycologists to do this research. Well, you've entertained us with a show and tell on your, on your tights. Could you show and tell with some of those, but also describe them for those who are at home listening on the wireless? And can't see them. Okay, so I guess what I've tried to do is challenge the idea of this kind of cap and stalk style mushroom that we're familiar with in the supermarket because in Australia we've got this amazing diversity, perhaps we could even say a mega diversity of fungi, possibly one of the most diverse in the world because we've got all these different types of environments. We've got tropical ecosystems, we've got deserts, we've got temperate rainforests. And we've got things like this that don't look like your average mushroom. Then we've got things like this, a type of puffball. And then we've got this particular one here, which is known as a cordyceps, which is actually parasitising or feeding on an insect. And so we've got this amazing diversity. Some of the oldest fungi of all are the lichens. Every single lichen is a symbiosis. And this whole notion of symbiosis for a long time was actually disputed in that time of Darwinian and Linnaean. That's an alga and a fungus. And a fungus together. And sometimes it's even a bit of a menage a trois. There's a few yeasts in there as well. <laughs> and so these are, yeah, probably the first organisms, as one of you mentioned earlier. So um, this is amazing diversity. We, we don't know how many species of fungi we have in Australia. At the moment, we're up to about 15,000 of the larger fungi. But that, that number could increase exponentially. And most of them don't even yet have names. So a lot of research to do still. Back in Reading, Brian, mm -hmm. do you similarly neglect the trade we've just been hearing about, the, uh, the kingdom? I think it's fair to say that fungi are neglected all over the world. Um, there's a lot of really great information out there, mostly from amateur mycologists. Um, in terms of the amount of science that's done on fungi, it's a relatively small fraction compared to everything else, and yet some of our most powerful antibacterial compounds come from fungi. Many of the ones that we're still using um, in hospitals were developed from fungi. Um, so there's this huge range of things that fungi do, and it's really exciting being in Australia for the first time because you have this immense diversity of fungi. Um, does everybody, does anybody know what a betong is? Right? What do betongs eat? Truffles. So you have marsupials that are living almost exclusively on truffles, which are the fruit bodies of fungi that are below the ground. And these fungi can no longer expel their own spores, which is how other fungi disperse. So if you have a mushroom that's popping up, it'll fire out its spores and they'll float around. No, these truffles are dependent on things like betong and echidnas and so on uh, to eat their truffles and then spread their spores around as they're moving around. So not only does Australia have a huge diversity of fungi, it has a huge diversity of other organisms that depend on them. And so you actually have all these symbioses going on between plants and fungi and animals, and uh, it's fascinating. Actually, in Western Australia, they uh, exploit the truffles they have there and 
produce more for Europe than practically Europe does itself. And they've worked out how to transport them very, very quickly, almost 24, 48 hours, they can be on the table in Italy or France. Now, I think you've heard, uh, Brian, of uh, a fellow who used to be at the university about uh, a K from here called Howard Florey. Penicillium yes. notatum? Mm -hmm. Revolutionized the world, didn't it? It did. And it's still doing so in remarkable ways, finding new drugs to see how they can take on. What, what sort of things are going on? Do you know? Do you follow that line of things? Well, I know that there are some people who are investigating the potential for uh, fungi to produce anti-cancer drugs. Uh, that's a big area of bioprospecting. But again, it's fungi, so there aren't actually all that many people looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the uh, people that I used to work with in British Columbia, Keith Egger, he's got students who are looking into fungi with anti-cancer properties. So it's a big potential area of research. We just need more people to be thinking about fungi in the first place. Yeah, I remember there was, uh, at Rutgers University in New Jersey, there was a fellow with a strange name uh, who was working for a professor who was quite keen on finding a way of attacking tuberculosis. And this guy went out, a student, and he dug up bits of earth, and on the 10th attempt, the 10th experiment, he found the active drug. And there's a book about it called Experiment Number 10, which tells the story of, sadly, how the professor stole his idea, got the Nobel Prize, and no acknowledgement for the student. Happens a lot these days. Well, not so much these days, but it used to then. In the soil, looking for fungi, looking for that sort of association, still goes on. Gavin, have you anything to do with that line of things, or are you mainly to do with the... the mycelium exploitation you talked about? So principally what we look at is the mechanical properties of the tissue. And things like yeast have been used for the production of beer and fermentation technologies to small molecules for uh, antibiotics and the like. And what we think is really unique about filamentous fungi is their naturally grown structure and how they can self-assemble the structure in such a short period of time. So for example, if you were to take a look at a tree, a tree has amazing mechanical properties because it has this beautiful vasculature, these long strands that give it its strength. But unfortunately, trees don't grow in the shape that we as humans typically require. They're not orthogonal rectangular shapes. So what we tend to do is we take those trees, we break them up into small particles, and we glue them back together. But when we do that, we lose the inherent mechanical properties. The mechanical properties degrade by over two magnitudes when we do that. So what's unique about fungi is that they can self-assemble this molecular structure, and they can do it in a rapid time scale and can be grown to form. And that's what's really unique about filamentous fungi and what sets them apart across other types of life. Yeah. Well, going back to Launceston, the story that I really love that we put on the old Catalyst a couple of years ago was to do with Preservation Island and a ship called the Sydney Cove, of all things, although it came from, I think, Calcutta. And uh, they misunderstood how big the ship had to be bringing the grog to Australia. They went down the west coast, they went along the bight, and uh, they were beginning to sink, and they had virtual slaves from India who were dying as they pumped out the stuff and were trying to keep the, the boat afloat. And eventually it got stranded on Preservation Island on what later became called Bass Strait. And your museum in Launceston mm. went out and preserved this major exhibition in part of that museum where I first came across it. They've got the bottles. In the bottles was yeast that had been there for 200 years. And they couldn't find a DNA, a genome that matched. So it had to have been there a long, long time. And apart from doing the science, as usual, the scientists thought of an application, making beer. <laughs> and they produced the world's oldest beer. And there was some argument, not least from someone on this campus, about whether it was really likely to have survived. So I did the obvious thing and took it to a guy who got a Nobel Prize in yeasts, uh, and Sir Paul Nurse at the Crick Institute in London. I gave him some of the beer and he said, there's no question, that's great beer. <laughs> and the yeasts can live for 200 years, amazingly. So, 
What else are you doing with um, fungi in Launceston and thereabouts in Tasmania? Well, you know, we're, we're interested in combining it with, di with different uh, other biomaterials. So I think what's really interesting with um, what Gavin was explaining about the way that it's colonised in a mould is, um, of course, a lot of the time in an industrial setting, there's still plastic in the equation because, you know, that's, that's just um, uh, most convenient for, for the process. But we're interested in um, using, say, kelp to form the mould as well as um, uh, putting uh, kelp in as the substrate for the mycelium. Um, there has been experiments with using algae previously, I understand. So, you know, that's, that's, that's really important, I think, from a local point of view. Um, both kelp and uh, mycelium for Tasmania. I mean, you know, we're seeing it within the context of climate change as well. Um, the name of the studio that I'm running is uh, a clinic for solastalgia. Solastalgia is a term which is um, the homeless, homesickness you feel when you're at home um, under uh, the duress of environmental um, distress, i.e. climate change. So, you know, we've lost like, you know, 90% of the, of the great kelp forest because of the, um, the warming of the ocean. We've just had these incredible fires of, you know, 22,000 hectares. So, you know, the, the condition of the environment, there's an urgency there. Um, but I think it also, um, it requires imaginative and experimental and speculative responses because we're really in the unknown with all of this. And so having these conversations across quite different areas and trying to, <laughs> I guess, connect the filamental threads is, is really important. See what might pop out of it. And what about the future? What would you each like to see happen to exploit, to further some of the interests, the scientific interests, you know, because they're fascinating things in themselves, but also the applications you just, what would you like to see happen? Yeah, well, first, we need more participants within the study of mycelium. Uh, mycologists right now, unfortunately, are truly an endangered species. <laughs> And uh, in terms of some of the most wild things that we're presently working on, um, if you're, we're all sitting down, so I'll, I'll <laughs> give you some background. So one of the things that we're doing with pure mycelium, since mycelium is biocompatible, it's non-toxic, uh, you can eat it, uh, is that we're actually starting to grow mammalian tissue on it. So one of the interesting things that we've been able to do is to take biopsies from human cell lines, incubate them on mycelium, and grow things like muscle and bone tissue directly on mycelium for biomedical applications. So we're able to use it as the structure for human organ growth, where if I need a new liver in 10 years, perhaps I can use mycelium to grow that particular product. Have you thought of combining it with the guys at uh, the University of Wollongong and Melbourne for that matter, 3D printing them? So we haven't participated in 3D printing, but we have partners both in the ne Netherlands as well as at the University of Texas uh, A&M that have 3D printed mycelium materials, both for building construction as well as furniture applications. So and for organs, human, human organs. They, they 3D print ears in Wollongong. Oh, interesting. I'm not familiar with their work. We're working with uh, the University of Ottawa, Andrew Pelling's laboratory, who has actually used apple scaffoldings to grow ears in the past, and now he's using mycelium scaffoldings. <laughs> Yes, Alison, what about you? The, the sky's the limit. Oh, look, I'm so excited that you're all here. I mean, this is so exciting that there's all these other fungal freaks out there. I mean, that's a great start. But what I, I think not only do we have perhaps the greatest diversity, one of the greatest diversities in the world of fungi, but I think we've potentially got the oldest knowledge of fungi. We often look to Europe for that knowledge, and we often hear that the Chileans or the Chinese have been using fungi for 6,000, 7,000 years, but ours is potentially 60,000 years old. Our Aboriginal knowledge of fungi is potentially the oldest knowledge in the world. So I would love to see us actually recognise what we have here in Australia, not just in terms of diversity, but in terms of how much knowledge we have. But that first, as I said earlier, requires greater public interest and awareness of how important they are in our functioning ecosystems and pretty much underpinning every single terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. What would you like to see, Brian? Um, dreaming big. I'd like to see all plastics, all polystyrenes replaced with mycelial products. And how are you uh, going to make that happen? Well, I'm having a good chat with Gavin and we've got a couple of ideas for, uh, for things in the, the area that I work in. Um, just as an example, in uh, the UK, most of the money that goes towards tree planting, do you know what it gets spent on? 
plastic guards to put around the seedlings. That's where most of the money in tree planting goes. And uh, in British Columbia, the tree seedlings are grown in polystyrene containers. Can you imagine if you could grow them in a mycelial product? That would be incredible. It, eventually, it will provide them with nutrients as well. So that's what I'd like to see. What about the horror stories? I can just imagine the people who don't like vaccines saying, oh my God, if you've got mycelium in the house, in the bricks, <laughs> the triffids will come and throttle you or something. <laughs> Is there any danger at all? Do you know of? So these materials do not have any known toxins associated with them. Fungi have been uh, exhibiting mycotoxins in the past. That's why there's a lot of plant pathology research or those that infect and disease plants, uh, particularly aspergillus or those hairy green guys that might you might see growing on bread if you leave it out too long. Uh, but with the species that we work with, they're known edible species, so they're non-toxic. You could eat them. We recommend that you don't eat them because they're not very tasty and they're actually very tenacious and tough, uh, but it is certainly possible. And then, of course, the other nice thing about uh, mycelium is that it naturally fixes minerals and nitrogen. That's what it does for the plants that it uh, forms a mutualistic relationship with as well. So these materials can so serve as a soil amendment once they're uh, done with their useful life cycle. They can clean up hairy, heavy metals and such like? Yeah, they do. There's some actually some really interesting research uh, that's coming out of uh, Montana State University uh, that I'm aware of where they're using uh, contaminated water that's been contaminated with certain heavy metals, copper, uh, aluminum, as an example. And fungi are known for what's called biosorption. So they can actually accumulate these metal salts onto the exterior of their cell wall which is predominantly made out of chitin, which is the same biopolymer you find in lobster and crab shells. And what they've been able to discover is that both using yeast and filamentous fungi, in this instance a penicillium strain, uh, which is where penicillin comes from, that they can actually pull uh, these elements out of water sufficiently to clean the water. And areas there, mining has existed for a while and have contaminated water streams, fungi could serve uh, at a greater extent to flocculate or remove these types of minerals from from those waterways. But what if, apart from the f not being attacked by them, but uh, what if you're living in a house with lots of bricks like that or containers and so on, and one day you find you've got your eyes on stalks and veins in your teeth and you're going dabba dabba dabba. So, magic mushrooms. <laughs> so, so today all of our materials when we ship them out are biologically inactive which is a nice way of saying that we, we kill them at the end of their life cycle. Uh, we are currently exploring opportunities with keeping the mycelium culture alive though, because today when we build our structures out of trees, uh, we're taking away the natural advantage of self-repair within these materials, as well as the sensory and the response. So we're currently uh, conducting a project with uh, the United States government where we're doing a number of things. One is we're demonstrating the ability to self-repair. We're also demonstrating the ability to take a component of house A and use it as a small section to then seed a new building for house B so that you can use local resources, say, after a natural disaster to rapidly rebuild a new space. And the second area is that Fungi respond to their environment. They're uh, known to respond to what are known as tropisms. So they respond to the carbon dioxide, the light, uh, the temperature stimulus within their environment. And they can also produce a number of pigments, normally in relation to light. We've been engineering specific strains such that they can respond to other things. Say uh, carbon monoxide as an example. Rather than having to put batteries in your carbon monoxide detector, which may beep every six months, imagine having a biological carbon monoxide detector that is continuing to stay bioactive and changes color when it's exposed to, say, uh, carbon monoxide. Interesting. And have you had any impediments, Gavin or Mike, when you've talked to authorities about wanting to use Have they put any blocks in front of you so, for some of the reasons I, I mentioned? Well, uh, yeah, we've had a few issues in Launceston just with, uh, well, there's a local outfit that we're talking to, Wildspore, who uh, grow um, oyster mushrooms. Um, to, to eat, uh, but we're interested in um, uh, in getting into biofabrication, and there's an, there's an old abattoir that's been converted into a whole series of, of little sort of boutique um, um, outfits, and th that had to go through a whole lot of rezoning. You know, it's like oh, biological materials, oh, you know. So local council, it was just really kind of over, over the you know outside their radar. 
Because the, the primary difference is when people think about allergens and they think about mold that may grow in the house or allergens associated with mushrooms, they're normally thinking of spores because these are the microscopic particles that are aerosolized and that we're inhaling in all the time. And this Ganoderma species is an example. This individual fungus, this fruiting body, the mushroom, can produce about 30 billion spores in an individual day. So that's a lot of potential allergens. When we work with mycelium materials, we don't actually use spores. So we're eliminating that source of allergen, namely because spores are new genetic material and we don't want to have any divergence in the material performance of the, the material. So we exclusively use the mycelium. And fungi, very similar to plants, can be cloned. You take a small clipping of the mycelium from this composite, you put it on a nutritive media, and it'll grow and propagate almost in perpetuity. And then of course we use some other storage methods to make sure that we can go back to our mother culture whenever we need to. But we never use spores within our process. But at that scale, even if they, you don't use spores, if they mutate, if they're adapting themselves to all sorts of things, on the, you know, it takes no time to get a new strain. How do you know they will be eventually self? That's almost trying to prove a negative, which is almost impossible. You'll be blocked, surely, by some of, some of the doubters saying that. Yeah, so the, the species that, that we use, they're all dimitic, so they're, they have their uh, full genetic material. Uh, we always do very comprehensive quality assurance analyses, checking both uh, certain biomarkers within the system to ensure that it's conserved, as well as me measuring the mechanical properties to make sure that they're consistent. Because it is a biological material, no two trees are the same, and the same is true for mycelium. You have to make sure that it has the precision that's necessary. So we take quality very seriously within, uh, within our organization. Uh, and the species that we use, they're not known gourmet species. So we've actually had to build that from the ground up. They're what are known as wild-type organisms. They're isolated from nature. And so we've had to fully profile the, uh, the genome ourselves, which takes a tremendous amount of effort rather than using common model organisms through Alison, research. I think thinking is really changing about fungi. I think for a long time the default response came from all of that incredible history and mythology we have of fungi being associated with, you know, supernatural with witchcraft for those terrible things called women. All yes, but also rotting and with potatoes. <laughs> Indeed. The blight. Phytophthora are killing the wine industry, you know? Yes, yeah. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's, that there's a lot we can learn from, from fungi and, and also a lot that needs to be unlearned. Indeed, and I think you know. we're actually in that process now. I mean, once people, the default response was, you know, I've got this fungus in my garden, what am I going to do? Now, all the time I have people saying, how can I encourage fungi in my garden? I want these beautiful things there. I now understand my plants will be much healthier. I understand I get architecture in the soil. I understand that the water will filtrate much more easily. My soil will be aerated. And so now the questions are always around how can we encourage fungi back into our gardens and, and natural ecosystems again? So thinking is changing, and it's happened just in the last few years, I think. It's, there's been this exponential increase in interest. The fact you've all come along today, the fact that more articles are appearing, the fact that at Wyoming Adelaide, there's a panel on fungi. I was so excited about that. But if you are worried, where do you go? Who do you ask? Brian in Britain, in Reading, who do you ask? If you're I'm worried, worried about, about fungi, fungi yeah. I try and find a mycologist. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> so we, we, who do you ask? I, I guess the, the interesting thing about fungi, one of the many interesting things about fungi, is that like most uh, organisms, they exist in this huge spectrum uh, of symbiosis. And symbiosis goes from pathogens that live at the expense of other organisms to mutualists, which support, uh, mutually support each other. That's where mutual comes from. Um, so it's all about finding the right parts of the fungal kingdom, working with them instead of against them. Yeah, but you see, I live in a house where I imagine that all my clothes are self-cleaning. <laughs> and when they get covered in mildew, um, I get told off. And if I say it's all harmless, and I just scrape off the whatever it happens to be, um, I get told that I'm endangering life. Who do you ask, Alison? Who do you ask? I, I'm, I don't have any problem with fungi. What is it that you're worried about, Robert? I'm not worried about it at all, but I <laughs> live in a house that's shared. Really. So is the problem about fungi or homo sapiens? Mm. 
How much have been <laughs> I mean, a lot. When we, of course, fungal blights have caused an incredible economic loss. But usually, when a fungus is a problem, it's because we've created an environment for them to flourish. So if we plant monocrops of food, of you know, I mean, what are fungi going to do? They're like, great, there's all this stuff I can eat. So usually, they're scapegoated as the cause of the problem, whereas in fact they're actually a symptom of much bigger systemic problems in the way we manage the environment. Yeah, but sure. The... <laughs> but these days it's not the scientists who answer the sensible questions with sensible answers. It's people worried about the law and liability. <laughs> you know. who, do you, who, who can you turn to? That's really an important thing. I think it's really about understanding the complexity of the issue, and I think, as you suggested, Brian, talking to mycologists, mycologists about it, actually understanding are the fungi just doing what fungi do, that is, recycle, break down organic matter, or sometimes it's, yeah, we can also get human fungal infections, but oftentimes, as I say, I think it's really not the fungi as the cause of the problem, but as a complex symptom. And in the UK, for example, I'm working with uh, people in government uh, looking at tree diseases, uh, particularly fungal tree diseases that have been introduced into the country uh, and how we should be managing those better uh, for protecting forests in the future. So it's a lot about communication. Kevin? Yeah, so we're presently working in the United States with the United States Department of Agriculture as well as the Environmental Protection Agency to both uh, provide a degree of understanding as well as to help foster some of the policy that will likely come from these materials. It's important to understand, however, though, that we've been using natural materials in our built environment for a long period of time. The two by fours that might be used to, to construct your house as an example. Now, that material is quite durable, but if you were to take that same piece of wood and put it in the forest and chip it up, it'll passively return to the earth. It will biodegrade. Uh, in terms of resources, and I'm sure this is probably true here in Australia, but at least in the United States, there are uh, cooperative extensions through either agricultural universities that can help assist in navigating the understanding of uh, various types of fungi. Alison, I believe you're going to be going on a tour of Australia forthcoming, right? Yes. Doing just this. Mm -hmm. uh, so those resources exist. Uh, perhaps they're not as apparent. Maybe they're as hidden as the mycelium underneath our feet. Um, but we should bring those to, to greater attention. Indeed. In a minute, I shall ask you for questions, but um, just a, a mention of two books. I wrote one of them, and they're going to be <laughs> out there. Mine's called Turmoil, which is about the kind of uncertainty which we're living through. And when I started writing it, um, I just survived cancer and God knows what else, and the upheavals at the ABC. And I thought by the time it gets published, everything will be fine. American politics will be predictable and sensible. <laughs> Well, still have Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister, and he would have got things turned around. And as for Brexit, <laughs> trying to work out really what's going on and what we sensible people can do about it, because the underlying theme of the book is that well over two-thirds of the population is sensible, cooperative, forward-looking, and doesn't want to have politics simply based on the retail of saving 200 bucks at the end of the year, but looking to the future as these guys are. And so we talk about mycelia, we talk about how plastics can be used for roads, and all sorts of brilliant ideas that should be invested in and so on. Alison, what is your book about? What's mine's it called? It's called The Allure of Fungi, and mine solves all those worries that's in your book. <laughs> so mine looks at, it looks at the fungi, but also looks at the people who are interested in fungi. So I spent a thousand days in the forests of 12 countries talking to people from mycologists to rangers to traditional owners to philosophers to photographers, all sorts of people, trying to get their take. It, it very much uses fungi as a lens to ask bigger questions about nature, about biodiversity. Can I just ask how I get to the front of the queue? <laughs> <laughs> I am actually going to give the first person in the queue a free copy worth $15 of Cosmos magazine, which is published here in uh, Adelaide through the uh, Science Media Centre and the RIOs. Now, who's got the first question? Put your hand up. Oh, look at so many. And there's one mic. Go nearest. Yes. In the front, front there. 
I don't think it's on. Yeah. With production of mycelium as a food product, I purchase one which is apparently made, grows on cornstarch and creates a good quality protein. Um, so I'd like to know if you know any other research and where that's going as far as turning our waste products through the fungi channel into food products. Thank you. Concerned. So fungi have been used for food for a prolonged period of time, of course, the mushrooms that we eat. And it was back in the 70s, actually in the UK, where they started exploring what they call mycoprotein, uh, exploring other filamentous fungal species like Fusarium uh, as a food source. Uh, they can, fungi are great at transforming any type of carbon source into their own body. And there are products like corn, Q-U-O-R-N, that actually are produced of a mycological protein that isn't a mushroom. Uh, I know one of the areas of interest for us right now is that mushrooms have been used as meat alternatives for a very long time, as alternatives to steaks, as an example. But they're always in the shape of mushrooms. Uh, what we've been able to do is we've been growing pure beds of mycelium uh, that are the size of a porterhouse steak, as an example, uh, but uh, still have the flavor profile of a conventional mushroom. So that's something that we're working on in terms of food technology that we hope to bring to market in the next two years. Thank you. Conventional agriculture, as it plows the soil, as it sprays the growing seedlings with fungicides, weedicides, etc., is all killing the mycology. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> You're right. Yes, it does. But I think things are changing. I'm, I work a lot with farmers, and I'm very excited to see how many farmers are looking at alternative ways, no-till farming, so that actual mechanical destruction of the soil breaks up that mycelium. When they over-irrigate, it drowns the mycelium. If you put too much NPK, nitrates, phosphates, potassium on, that also has an effect. Anything in excess is toxic. But there's so many farmers who are actually now changing the way they're, they're either not ploughing or they've got these new ploughers that actually have less surface area touching the ground. So I think things are turning around, and it's happening here in Australia. I think Australia's leading the way. So things are changing. Definitely. Farmers are so interested in new ways of doing agriculture. You call it conventional agriculture, but it's really the industrialized form of agriculture uh, that has led to this process. And it's farmers who are the front line of, uh, of trying to change this. Mm. Thank, you very, thank you very much. It was fascinating. I come from a background of laboratory research where huge amounts of plastics are used and are disposed. Single use, they're disposed. Is there any possibility that um, mycelial products could replace laboratory um, plastics now used for the laboratory? That's, that's, a, that's a great question because uh, those plastics particularly as well as the glassware have to be sterilized, right? And what's really unique about mycelium is that their biochemical backbone is made out of chitin and the glass transitioner when chitin actually melts isn't until about 290 C. So the material is autoclavable. Now the challenge for us as a business is that unfortunately people aren't willing to pay more for sustainability. So we have to always focus on the product applications that we can be directly competitive with plastics. So long term as we scale, we might be able to serve the laboratory environment, but right now we're focused on specific markets in packaging and furniture. I've got a question about how important fungi are in the human microbiome. Well, we did speak a bit earlier about uh, all of these uh, antibacterial properties that fungi have that we've been har harnessing for a long time. Um, and of course, as humans, we, are, we have our own microbiome. So we have our bacteria, we're interacting with fungi all the time. They're, they're very important. Alison? Yeah, I mean, I've heard these figures like we're only 10% human yeah. DNA. I find, I find hard, you might be, but it's, I find that hard to believe. But when we, we are a massive symbiosis of all these other organisms, fungi, bacteria, and, and without them. So, yeah, I'll pass the handball that one to you, Gavin. We don't work in the field of, uh, <laughs> of antibiotics. 
Uh, I can speak to the fact that our uh, Grow It Yourself kits, which allow individual folks to grow mycelium materials at home, uh, are allow even individuals or children as young as five to work with the, the materials just because they do produce their own antibiotics. They have their own immune system and that has helped bolster the product. But uh, in terms of human health, Mike? Um, not my area, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> um, Brian, I think, mentioned that fungi adapt to the environment. Um, I want to know how much of a threat climate change is to the continued existence of fungi. And if I can slip in another question, trees need fungi, but do fungi need trees? Absolutely, fungi need trees. Uh, so fungi can't produce their own carbon. They get their sugar uh, from trees, at least the ones that I work with. Different fungi uh, break down uh, materials in the soil to extract carbon from them, uh, but uh, the trees depend on the fungi, fungi depend on trees, and how they are responding to climate change uh, is where some of our research is going now. So looking at the interaction between what's happening with the trees and with their symbionts, because these are obligate symbioses. Trees need the fungi to extract water, to extract nutrients from the soil. Uh, in some cases, they provide physical protection to the roots from soil pathogens. So there was, some, there was actually some work done back in the 70s on uh, Phytophthora uh, cinnamomum. Not in festans. Not in festans. <laughs> but the one that's been infecting eucalypts all through Australia. And uh, what they showed was that if the roots were already covered by the symbiotic fungi, then the Phytophthora couldn't get in and infect the plant. So we know there's a lot of important interactions here, and uh, well, we need more people to be studying fungi to be able to answer some of those questions. I mean, questions. there's currently no one in Australia looking at the effect of climate change on fungi. There's some research being done in the UK and in Scandinavia. At the moment in Australia, there are some researchers looking at the effects of fire. So the increased incidence and extent and severity of fire is considered to be a, an effect of climate change. So in Western Australia and in Tasmania, we're seeing that fire is affecting fungi. With some fungi, like some plants, some are actually what we call pyrophilus or fire-loving, and some fungi respond to fire. But we think when we get these catastrophic, really extreme fires where the temperature actually goes right down into the soil, it actually completely wipes clean the fungi. And yeah. so that not only affects the fungi, it affects those trees that have lost their mycorrhizal partners. So the trees are at their most vulnerable state after fire because they don't have those fungal connections. So we, as you suggested, we, this, at the moment there's zero research looking at climate change and fungi in Australia, but hopefully, hopefully soon we might see some. I live in um, marginal country in South Australia and one of the things we have to, is like a hard crust on the surface of the land. Now is that, that's a microbial, um, mycological thing. And fungal. So soil yeah. crust are often made up of, of, uh, of microbes, of bacteria, of fungi, particularly of lichens. Lichens are very, very important in the formation of those soil crusts that stabilise areas that have been disturbed, but also in desert country as well. Were they the first invaders of land? Well, we think so. We think perhaps lichens, there's one known as prototaxetes, we think that those first lichens actually were able to secrete enzymes that broke down those primeval rocks, created the first soils that allowed those very primitive plants, such as horsetails and club mosses, to actually get a root hold and to start. So we think that fungi, or lichens, and you'll see in areas of, say, in New Zealand or Europe, where the glaciers are receding, the very first organisms to colonise that new territory, that bare rock, are actually lichens. Hi, um, I was just wondering what your hottest tips are for us all to go home and do in our own space and to encourage others around us to do as well. To encourage fungi? Is that is? I guess there's two things. It's one to, is to, the first is to create the habitat, and the second is to limit the stresses. So by creating habitat, stop raking. <laughs> Leave that organic matter there. Fungi like a diversity of organic matter. They like all sorts of different species, different sizes, different ages of organic matter. So leave it there. The whole concept of tidy gardens, I think, is now sort of, we're overcoming that now. So leave that organic matter there. Create those microhabitats, microclimates, but also limit the stresses. The stresses being compaction. Try and minimise the heavy machinery. Don't burn up, burn off 
your organic matter, try to minimise chemical use, try to minimise overwatering. So it's those two things together. And the fungi, they'll come. If you create the habitats and minimise the stresses, they'll come. But it's not like, say, planting trees where you actually dig the hole, put the tree in, you watch it grow. You need patience. And, but over time, if you create those microclimates and microhabitats, they'll be there. Alison, uh, a related question. Do you have information, uh, you mentioned indigenous knowledge of fungi. Where in Australia could we get some reliable information about what types of fungi are safe to eat and possible benefits? Oh, look, this is a great question. We've had virtually no ethnomycologists, that is humans, looking at human use of fungi. There's one paper written in 1985 in a book put out by the CSIRO called Fungi 1A, very imaginative title. There's also <laughs> Fungi 1B. And a chap called Arpad Kolotis probably wrote the most important paper ever written on Aboriginal use of fungi in Australia, and he documented seven types of truffles that were eaten by Aboriginal people, or not were, are eaten, as well as some medicinal fungi. Then there was a second researcher called Jim Trappy from the United States who also looked at uh, edible truffles in Australia. But basically there's no other research that's been done. This is another whole area that's been entirely neglected. And, and very tragically, most of that knowledge now is actually being lost. So whatever's left, it would be wonderful if we can somehow tap into that knowledge so we know actually what's edible. Hi, thank you. I wanted to ask regarding building materials. I presume the plastic industry will fight back on any profits, profits they might be losing if they gain a successful competitor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you might be thinking about that aspect of development? Yeah, certainly. So we're presently not at a sufficient scale to invoke fear into the, the large chemical industry. Uh, they are following us. We get emails and phone calls from them all the time, checking in. And it's about starting to gain more traction. So, for example, our building construction materials are not very popular with, in the United States because we don't build uh, frequently with organic materials. Whereas we've had a significant amount of pull within the European Union because uh, natural mineral fiber products like uh, mineral insulation or wood fiber insulation have gained far more traction there. So with any societal change, things take a tremendous amount of time and we're slowly starting to see and gain that traction. And I think until we hit that critical mass and distribute the technology more broadly where it, it needs to be, uh, that's when we'll start to garner more attention. And you know, there's, um, there's shifts happening in regulation already and um, like Hobart City Council outlawed, um, put a ban on um, single-use plastics just last week. So that's, that's, that's starting to happen. Um, Launceston Lons City Council is considering doing the same. Of course, Europe have, have, have done a ban. Um, and there's, a there's a, quite a diverse range of bioplastics that could replace um, synthetic plastics. So um, using rice, um, there's a number of uh, um, outfits in places like Indonesia where it's, a, where it's a, a big problem that have actually got viable solutions that, can, that are scalable. And this I'm afraid will have to be the last. Go for it. Um, I heard Paul Samat, is that his name? Samat. Incredible what mushrooms can do in cleaning up toxic waste, nuclear waste, um, oil from the oceans. Can anyone speak to that? Plastic in the ocean we can turn into roads. <laughs> Islands. Seasteading with mycelium. <laughs> so. So fungi are really good at producing complex enzymes, what are known as isoenzymes. So within plants, plants aren't just a, only made out of cellulose, they're also made out of this substance called lignin, which is this brown waxy substance that helps bind things together and it's a very large molecule. So the same enzymes that break down lignin within trees and other plants can also attack what are known as long-term scientific name polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And so they're, and that's basically petrochemicals, simple, simple term, things like plastics. So I know of some great research coming out of uh, Tom Volk's lab at the University of Wisconsin, where they've used phenarachidi, a rust fungus, to break down plastics, namely polypropylene. And there's been some great work by uh, organizations like Paul Stamets's Fungi Perfecti, where they've used human hair to sop up oil, because hair is very oleophilic, and then use uh, Pleurotus ostriatus, the common tree oyster, which produces a large number of these enzymes to slowly degrade and break down uh, petrochemicals like uh, from oil spills. 
From what we've heard today, amazing enterprise possible, studies possible. If anyone here knows vice-chancellors, say from Flinders or the University of Adelaide, University of South Australia, we've got the Waite Institute for Agricultural Research. Adelaide is ideal. Do you have a wine industry in, Australia, in South Australia? <laughs> Agriculture, I mean, the potential is fantastic. So give them a nudge and it would be absolutely tremendous to act on some of the bright ideas we've heard today. Would you please thank Mike and Gavin and Alison and Brian? <laughs>